Welcome to OR Insights, a podcast from Baxter Advanced Surgery that explores the big questions in surgery today. I'm your host, Michelle Menendez, and in each episode, we go into the operating room with leading surgeons for a conversation about their practice and expertise in making critical operating decisions in real time. Today, we will answer these two questions. How can hospitals leverage their own data to improve operational challenges? And secondly, how can hospitals enhance clinical quality metrics driven to reduce intraoperative blood loss and transfusions without compromising those operational improvements? For that, I'm joined by two guests from Advent Health Tampa, Dora Mipsudi, Senior Clinical Supply Chain Manager, and Dr. Alan Chudzinski, Director of Colon and Rectal Surgery and Division Chief of Surgery and Digestive Health. Ms. Masudi and Dr. Chudzinski were both instrumental leaders within their organization as Baxter and Advent Health partnered through the Advantage Program, actualizing close to $200,000 in annual savings. Advantage is an intraoperative hemostasis management program designed to help hospitals and healthcare providers improve hemostasis utilization practices. Dora, can you share an overview of Advent Health? Absolutely. The West Florida Division of Advent Health has some of the nation's brightest medical minds making life-saving breakthroughs with surgical pioneers and scientists and researchers using leading edge technology and innovation to deliver our brand of whole person care. Advent Health is a faith-based, non-for-profit healthcare system with nearly 50 hospitals across the United States. Dr. Chudzinski, tell us about Advent Health Tampa. Advent Health Tampa is a 550-bed hospital, and we're a tertiary care center in the Tampa Bay region. Uh, it's grown extensively, and we see a variety of patients um, from a surgical perspective, from hepatobiliary to colon and rectal to bariatric to acute care surgery to orthopedic and neurosurgical. Dora, describe everyday challenges in the OR. Everyday challenges in the OR would be getting what we need for our patients and our surgeons on a daily basis. Um, Pre-COVID, there'd be hurricanes, snowstorms in different parts of the nation. Now in the world of COVID, we have raw material shortages to where we're trying to make sure that we have the best products that we have for everybody. How do those needs translate to efficiency initiatives? So every year, the cost of materials and supplies goes up. During that time, you know, we have to find ways to offset that cost. So we work on any type of cost savings initiatives that we can do. Some of them are easy, some of them are not so easy. Projects like the one we did with Baxter is actually one of the easier ones. How so? Well, when you're looking at data and you're looking at what can we do, you know, whether we're, what products are we using, what products are the surgeons using, and how can we translate that data into information that we can provide to them for the safety and betterment of their patients. Um, for example, when we're, when we're looking at data, data does not lie, but data can be misread. So that's where I come in and I start saying and looking through the data to figure out exactly what it is that we're looking at. Seprafilm is a perfect example. We have, you know, one of the anal analysts brought it to me and stated that we were overusing Seprafilm. So I asked her to look deeper into the data as I'm trying to coach and mentor her. What exactly are you looking at? When you're looking at this data and you're stating that so-and-so is using too much Seprafilm, well, it turns out they were using the appropriate amount of seprafilm on specific cases, but then when they were using, whether they have single, single incisions or one incision, he was just calling for a party pack. 
party pack is multiple sheets. So when we take that information and we provide it to the surgeon, there was an immediate change. I think that was what, 30, 60,000 right off the bat within yeah. one day. Yeah. One day. So information and data can be viewed in multiple ways, but it's how you present it that you can come up with savings and ways to be better for the patient and, and provide the surgeon with information for his surgeries. It's oh, great insight. I want to transition into the initial value of the program. One of the broader challenges in the hemostatin sealant space is standardization. And oftentimes hospitals will aim to standardize where possible, but in the adjunct hemostasis arena, it's impossible to standardize. Therefore, hospitals must explore ways to contain and reduce spend without sacrificing or compromising clinical needs. How did working with Baxter through the Advantage program come about? Um, well, they came to me and they said that they had this new, um, back then it was Vital Edge, and I'm sorry, I don't remember what it is now, but they came to me and they said that they had this product and it required EMR data. So we pulled the data. I, they had certain things that they wanted us to look at. So we pulled that data and took out any type of patient identifier. So we were following all uh, HIPAA guidelines. And we took that and we provided them with that data that they can then in turn do their analysis. Even prior to that, we gave once they presented the project to me, we gave them permission to go into the ORs and watch specific cases and see exactly what we are opening, what we are wasting. And when we crossed the two, we were able to come up with ways to save money and ways to provide surgeons with information that states, you know, hey, we're doing it this way and this is how much, say, thrombin you're using or how much of this product or that product you're using and here's a leaner process that you may want to consider versus telling them, hey, this is a way that, you know, we're going to save money because at, at the end of it, it's, it's the patient. So even whatever we're doing, if there's a way that we can lean out a process and we can provide better hemostasis for that patient, then we can provide the surgeon with that information. Dr. Chudzinski, as a surgeon advocate, can you discuss your role within this initiative? Well, as the chief of surgery, uh, we're always looking at our outcomes and we're always looking to improve our patients' overall uh, experience and to make sure that things are running uh, significantly smoothly from a clinical standpoint. Part of that is looking at utilization of things like blood products and return to the operating room and ICU length of stay and for what reason other resources within the hospital are being used. And specifically, we're looking at blood utilization and working on those committees and uh, hearing about the program and working together with Dora and Baxter, um, looking at different ways that we can offer great patient outcomes uh, and also offer great cost of savings. So when we're looking at a variety of products that might help to reduce bleeding and trips to the operating room and blood loss and looking at the cost value of that. And once we looked at the numbers and looked at the efficacy and the data was there to support it, then it really all fit together. Makes sense. So Dora, how were the goals outlined at the start of the initiative? What were you looking to achieve? Honestly, in the very beginning, I wasn't really sure what we were looking. We were looking for a cost savings, but I, I wasn't expecting it to grow into what it grew into. So once we started like diving into the data and going back and forth and seeing exactly what was there, we found more opportunities than we originally you know, considered. You had, you had touched on this a moment ago in mentoring and guiding um, some of the coordinators through this initiative. How did your how did your role throughout the initiative, how did it evolve? So 
exactly that in mentoring and guiding. Um, if we're providing, we're, we're telling staff, whether it be the coordinators or bringing that information to surgeons, they have to be comfortable with that information. So if we just say, hey, we want you to do this, they're not gonna understand. So the way that we did that is I sat them down. We had multiple meetings. I broke it out per service line. So that way Baxter and me could sit down with them and they could understand what we were looking at, why we were looking at, have them review the data, ask any questions they might have, and if they had any apprehensions that we can work through that. From there, we literally met like once a week. There was a whiteboard that we put together. We put together all of their questions, anything that they needed information to where they felt comfortable and educated to move forward with the information. After a couple of weeks, they were all very comfortable. They were all very comfortable with asking the questions. They all became very engaged. They understand what our purpose was, what we were trying to do. And they were, until they felt comfortable with that education, then we didn't move forward. So prior to the start of, of this initiative, were there concerns? Were there, were there, was there hesitation? There was hesitation in not knowing exactly what they were looking at in the sense of learning, being educated, being comfortable, and understanding that where we stood. And that's where I came in to mentor them and give them that guidance that they needed. If they had questions, you know, not everybody's the same. The way that I speak to Dr. Chudinsky may not be the way that I speak to Dr. X in a sense. He has things that he wants. When he, when he wants information from me. And there, so I present it that way. So I would guide and mentor them towards that. You know, speak to A, B, C, and D in the way that A, B, and C, and D would like that information, information approach to them. Talk about the whiteboard a little bit more. What kinds of information or questions were on that whiteboard? Anything that they wanted to know, whether it was questions about a product that they needed to know from Baxter so that they had more clinical understanding of the product, if they had questions of what their physician was using and how much of it they were using so that therefore they could provide that information back. Um, there was things actually even non-related to Baxter. It turned into a bigger thing because of the collaboration that we had, that we were working through, that they would throw stuff on there about robotics. Hey, I've got questions about robotics. I wish I had brought a picture because honestly, it was, there was a lot of information. It was very engaging. And we had, we had one of the coordinators who has absolutely beautiful handwriting and she was very engaged in being up there and writing the answers in different <laughs> colors. And it turned into a, a team collaborative effort. That's, that sounds like fun. <laughs> so how, um, how were additional team members identified in this project? We pretty much um, brought the coordinators in. It was a great, it was a lot of them, we had just kind of launched the service, not, not right away, but a lot of them are still very new in their roles. So they were a, we were able to work with them and show them you know, what it is to work through any type of initiatives. It doesn't even have to be a cost savings initiative. This helps guide and mentor them towards any type of conversion initiatives or ideas they may even have. So it, it helped them grow and to bring ideas themselves. They're like, hey, I have this idea. Can you do some research on this? Sure, no problem. Let me research that, whether it be a trocar, whether it be something. So it really helped them kind of bloom into being comfortable with having a lot of conversations that they're having now. Uh, I want to ask each of you this question. Um, we'll start with Dr. Chudzinski. What was your expectation of your reps, your Baxter reps that were supporting you? Yeah, I think the biggest thing was to make sure that they're available to provide education <clears throat> to the staff um, and support them in their needs, uh, not just the clinical staff that helps to stock the product, order the product, but also the clinical staff in the operating room from techs to nurses to surgeons 
to re-educate and using surgeon champions to help um, facilitate that as well, um, to help educate, to help them understand in, in a gentle and, and, and non-compromising fashion, um, uh, alluding to what Dora said, you know, each surgeon sometimes needs to be spoken to in a different matter. Some people are more data-driven, some people are more cost-driven, but all of that information is important. And the bottom line is we need to understand, all of us, how it works in order for us to understand where it's going to fit in our patient care pattern. Um, and then if we can show that it's cost-effective, because if it's an overpriced product with good results, then we've got to balance the, you know, the reality of using a product like that. So. Our, uh, our reps were very important in uh, getting the message out there of all the things I mentioned, and they were very, very prominent um, and forward-thinking and not overbearing, which I think is also very important. You know, for, for all the knowledge and data that they had, um, they were never pushing their product on us uh, in, in any kind of compromising fashion. Uh, just providing the education, providing the resources, providing the ability to teach the staff. Um, I think that was very important. Dora, anything to add? I agree with that 110%. <laughs> he hit the nail on the head on all marks. Education is extremely important and for them to feel comfortable and to them to feel comfortable with the reps in the rooms and for them not to be so overbearing, not to be the, you should be doing this and why did you open that? And that, that, that does not help, especially with the patient on the table, yeah. especially when we're trying something new. So having that, that education, that knowledge in the room to be there and be supportive and be exactly that, be supportive in that fine line, not overbearing, but not too far back in, you know, in the scenes of the, the surgery is extremely important. Yeah. There's always an unspoken variable around culture and developing a positive environment where trust is fostered and learning and continuous improvement occurs. Um, Dora, how important do you feel the culture of the team is when you're doing projects like this? It is extremely important. They have to, that, when we started this, it was exactly that, making sure that they felt supported, that they there was trust and that we were building into something. We're not just sending them out saying, do this. They were completely comfortable and all of them agreed they were comfortable before we even said, let's move forward, start having those conversations. And Dr. Chudzinski, talk about the importance of empowering your team and in, in the room with you as it relates to building that culture of continuous learning and improvement. Absolutely, I mean, we have to continue to encourage our team. Um, we're responsible for helping to educate them. And then empowerment is so important. Like once they understand how the product works and where it works and where it's best utilized, um, it's so important to truly work as a team in the operating room because it's a fine machine that when everyone's clicking, it truly works like a machine and things go smoothly. When you're working with the same people um, and, and they're familiar with the steps of the surgery and they know how products work, I want my team to be able to speak up and say, hey, uh, don't use this product. You, have you thought about using this product or why not just use a you know, 10 ml of this and 10 of, instead of three, four mls. Little steps like that that were very important that they would have never had the knowledge because they weren't exposed to it before, but working with Baxter, the reps, uh, and working with Dora and her team to come in and all working together to understand cost and effectiveness of the products is it's, it's just so crucial. Now you touched on something, having the, the ability to have open dialogue and even exercise price transparency so that each of the team members understand what products cost and what the impact is um, to the patient is all very um, a critical part of 
of what goes on in the OR. Um, I want to I want to take a step back because in 2019, your facility um, had what's called a live utilization review, where we deployed a team of third-party observers to come and observe. Um, specific uh, specialties and cases and collect data points relative to intraoperative blood management. Um, Dora, do you remember that experience? And can you tell us a little bit more about that? I do. That was actually pre-COVID and then we had a little bit of a hiccup before we started actually phasing into phase two, phase one. Um, so they came in and they found some really great findings on things that I, I or the teams would not see when we're doing our day to day. Uh, we were opening products that we didn't need to open. So one of the first things that we did is once we got that data and we looked at it, we started having conversations. You know, do we need to open X, Y, and Z? Or can we wait or can we have a little bit of a warning to say, hey, I'm at that crucial moment where I think I might need it and if I need it, I need it. So then we would pop it then onto the back table versus just from the very beginning having everything set up. And you'd be surprised how many surgeons are more than happy to do that because again, that's cost to their patients. Yeah, when, when you first saw that data, we did the report out, what was your initial reaction? I honestly was not expecting it to be where it was. So I jumped on that project right away. <laughs> <laughs> I was a little taken aback. <laughs> Why were you taken back? There was a lot of stuff that, you know, our, our physicians honestly didn't even, well, they know it's being open. They know it's on their preference cards, but, you know, text would maybe have it ready to go, hidden under a towel versus saying, hey, so when they got more comfortable with having those conversations. Now it's not me going, guess what, they're open. <laughs> And they're not telling you. I'm not doing that, you well, know. But those conversations are so important, and Dora alluded it to it earlier. I mean, surgeons are not just technicians. We care about the whole global experience. And so, it, you know, Dora knows she can contact me and many other surgeons just say, hey, have you considered not opening this? I'm like, well, that's not supposed to be open. So, again, that goes to that communication, and I have that communication with my team, and my team knows don't open these instruments until we verbally agree because how the case moves forward, we might not use that instrument or might not use that product. So that goes back to that constant communication, that open dialogue with the team where we all have to work together because no surgeon wants to spend excessively on their surgery or, or quite the contrary. We want to say, look what we did and look at, look at how well the patient did despite not having to use all this extra equipment. Getting to the point in trust from the open dialogue is, is getting there is extremely important and it makes a difference. We just had a conversation in the hallway. You know, it's not always about don't open and don't do. It was the, hey, I've got this product, it expired. Oh yeah, we need it, no problem. You know, and it's like, we just lower our par. Because mm -hmm. there's things, there's cost of doing business. And when we have size trikes that we never use, but you know what, once in 10 years, you're gonna save a life. So it's not always about the savings, but it's about getting to the point where you have that open dialogue with the staff, with the surgeons and that communication. It's not always about don't do, don't open. It's what can we do? How can we all work together to make it better? That's excellent feedback. Um, when we when we hit the the first wave of, of COVID last year, we had to put this initiative on hold mm -hmm. and then re-engage once the once it started to settle down. And uh, that's when we reapproached about the EMR data analysis. Mm -hmm. How would you describe the difference 
between the live utilization review and doing the EMR analysis. I like data. So, <laughs> <laughs> I like reading data. I like interpreting data. I like I like working with analysts. That, you know, the separate film came out of that. You know, we were having the conversations and we're looking at that, and it's like, well, you look at what they're doing. actually no. So there's multiple ways to look at it. Like I said, data does not lie, but it can be misread. It can be misinterpreted. So you can look at something and say this particular surgeon is using so much more hemostatic you know, agents than anybody else. Well, that particular surgeon is doing livers and other people are not and using it in a certain way or using it in a not. And then we go back to the whole party pack thing. So for me, it was exciting and interesting. And I like diving into that and seeing exactly what we can find. Because when you really start diving into data, you can find a lot of things that can be very useful for all of our surgeons to take back to their patients. Again, it's the way that you approach. I'm not going to go, you're using <laughs> I would never say that. <laughs> well, I share in the passion it, of... It wasn't Dr. <laughs> <laughs> I share in the passion of leveraging data. And I, I uh, think in when we looked at the data more closely, we were able to look into more specialties as mm -hmm. a result and then begin to really understand how these products were utilized. Um, today, we face a national critical blood shortage. And um, you mentioned in, in your opening, Dr. Chudzinski, collaboration um, with the blood bank and the lab and, and some of these other areas of the hospital. Can you talk about that collaboration and some of the strategies that you and your colleagues take to conserve blood and ensure optimal patient outcomes? Sure, well, we're always looking at the availability. Um, it starts preoperatively, looking at your patient, making sure they're medically optimized for surgery. Um, we get a lot of very sick patients with advanced diseases, so <clears throat> and there's unfortunately no perfect patient ever, but we try to optimize them to allow the best outcomes. And when we're dealing with anemia, um, that's a very serious issue, obviously, it has a long term sequela from um, myocardial infarction to lack of uh, flow and ischemia to the organ that we're trying to trans, uh, perfuse or, or uh, do surgery on. So uh, we work very closely to know what our blood levels are. We try to avoid that in general as surgeons, uh, particularly as an oncologic surgeon. We know that there's a lot of negative impacts with um, transfusing a patient due to immunogenic properties. Uh, they just simply don't do as well. Um, so we work very hard with our team and educating everybody about uh, what other products are available to try to control hemostasis to make sure that post-operatively the patient's not going to require blood products. What can we do to limit that? Uh, what can we do to limit the, the ability to the patient needing to come back for a second surgery? So all that's important and working with the blood bank and working with um, the teams to, to make sure what's available, but it's constantly in flux and we have to constantly be aware of it but by re-educating people and making them available of hemostatic agents, uh, I think that has helped tremendously. Dora, earlier you described the operational challenges around the basic everyday question, do we have what we need? Let's transition from, op from the operational challenges to the impact on clinical practice. Dr. Chudzinski, you talked about the importance of education and appropriate selection of utilization of hemostatic agents. You also play an instrumental role in the internal education of your colleagues and supporting surgical teams. 
when providing insight to how these agents are used, they all sound similar. They all have similar jobs to stop bleeding, but we know that there are two important components to consider when selecting the right product for the right bleed. First part is understanding the difference between active and passive agents, and the second part is gaining insight to better understanding why overutilization, misuse, and waste occurs. Dr. Chudzinski, can you explain the difference between active and passive agents? This is such an important concept to understand because we really have to understand the coagulation cascade if we want to appreciate how the product works in the environment that we want it to be used in. Uh, the coagulation cascade helps a human body coagulate to form a clot. And active works by having the product right within the system that you're delivering it. That is, that product has thrombin in it. That product has the ability to work and provide the last steps of the coagulation cascade right there within the product itself. In the passive effort, this requires a patient to have active clotting factors that come from the liver. It also requires a patient not to have any anticoagulation on board. It also requires the platelets to function well. So we deal with so many sick patients that so many of them um, are on anticoagulation, have poor liver function, have platelet dysfunction, but a passive product works directly on an area that may have a cut or an injury, so the platelets are trying to aggregate, and you're using a product like a powder or a gelatin directly on the area to try to stop the bleeding. Please keep in mind that with the passive agents, you need to have a functional liver, you need to not have anticoagulation on board, Otherwise, you're literally just blowing dust on these things and hoping that it'll work. Once you understand those concepts, you might be using a product that is just as expensive or the same price as an active product that may be more functional and more beneficial and cost-effective to a patient. It's an excellent, excellent description. I wanna, I wanna ask you a question because there's administrators sitting in the audience, so why is that important? that information important to them? Why would you want them to know that information? Well, I think it's important not just for the clinicians to understand how the product functions, but for the administrators, I think it gives you a lot of knowledge to understand that, and it helps you to understand why you may want to uh, spend the money so that you're using it cost-effectively. Uh, if you're buying products that uh, require a human being to be normal and healthy, and it's the same price as a product that has something in it that will stop bleeding right away, regardless of the other patient's medical issues, then it just behooves you to understand how things function. We're not act asking any administrator to understand the complete depths of the physiology, but if you get a basic understanding which Baxter reps or your surgeon should be able to sit down and talk to you about, then that's very important. That's what we were able to do and sit down and working together with our team members, clinical and non-clinical, to really come together and understand how we can help our patients and how to do it in a cost-effective manner. Thank you. Dora, when you were looking at the data, there's something that you noticed, a, a theme in passive agents and active agents. Can you talk about that? So we noticed that we were using a lot more passive agents versus activations. When you go talking about administration, again, when your passive agents, the, 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 the each price is a lot less than your active agent. When they're looking at that, they may say, oh, we want to use more of this. But when you show them the bigger picture, the higher level picture, and say, well, we now spent all of this, 
and we still had this much bleeding. But if we had done this, in the long run, we actually saved more money. And we did, used a whole lot less for the patient. So a lot of times when we're working on cost savings projects and stuff like that, that is what people are considering. But you, it's not just about the money, because sometimes when you spend a little more, you're actually saving a lot less. You're saving OR time, you're saving time for the patient, you're saving blood loss, you're doing all of that. So it is not my role per se to tell a surgeon what he or she can and cannot use, but it is important that I help provide them with that data so they can make that clinical decision for their patients and support them in that decision to administration or to anybody that needs to to explain, yes, we are looking on using this active agent instead of these passive agents, but this is why and then be able to provide that data so they can continue doing what the best that they can do for the patients. Moving into implementation, tell us about that process. So implementation was the education and making sure that they were all comfortable. Back to the whiteboard, that was a huge part of what helped them feel comfortable because it, it was down by my office. We, that's where we would meet and had a little round table there where everyone could get their thoughts, their comments, their concerns. You know, sometimes in the very beginning, like I would have to kind of get it out of them. I could see it on their face. There'd be a little squinting of the eyes and it's like, it's okay to ask whatever question that you have. If you're not comfortable, it doesn't work. If you're not believing in what you're saying, it doesn't work. You can't go up and talk to somebody and not and stutter through it and not know what it is and how comfortable you are. Or, you know, even if you don't have the answer, be comfortable enough to say, you know what, Dr. Chudinski, I don't have that answer, but I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna let you know so that way you're comfortable as well. So the whiteboard provided all of that. We had anything, any topic, anything. So it was there, it was it was very different than taking notes. It's a fully engaged process to where everybody could see it. They could come through, they could pass through at any particular time, reread what they wanted to look at, reread the topics and you know the, the outcomes that we came back the next week, pop into my office at any time venue, especially when we were doing the education of this project, ask whatever questions they had and know that I was going to get back to them as soon as possible so that they were comfortable. We did not move forward with implementation until everybody agreed that they were comfortable and didn't have any further questions. Even after we started the implementation, if they had anything, they knew that I was at their beck and call at that particular moment, I would get them what they needed, whether it be from the reps, whether it be any information or data that I needed to collect or anything along, along those lines. Dora, how are different opportunities ranked as far as the project and how we managed it. When you saw the data and you saw the opportunities, how did you segment those and decide which ones you were gonna go after first? I left it to the group of the coordinators. Because I can't, the best way to lead is with collaboration. So if I tell them, hey, I want you to work on this project first, it may not be the one that they were the most comfortable with. So whether it was operational, it was clinical, what we decided to do next, we decided as a group because wins matter. The more wins they had, so if they had they had part of the project that they were the most comfortable with and they had wins from it, it gave them the confidence that they needed to move forward. If I had stated, hey, this is the biggest one, this is the biggest op you know, operational, it's gonna give us the most bang for our buck or it's, gonna, it's, it's the biggest part of it. We just really wanna make sure that we win this, but we didn't approach it in the right way. We didn't have the different conversations with the different surgeons that we needed to have or things just didn't run smoothly and we started off with a loss that wouldn't have helped with their confidence. So the best way for me to lead them through all of that is to allow them to have a voice in which way that we would go, whether it was the clinical or the operational. And honestly, that is the way that I do it for all of my projects. Even now, we were talk, we're at Advent, where we're moving to a new surgical tower. How we do that is a team approach. At the end of the day, I might make a final decision, but if you are not listening to the people that are part of the projects, you do not succeed. 
Goes back to empowering your team. Empowering my team. Dr. Chizinski, you have a unique role within the OR and amongst your colleagues when it comes to patient blood management. Can you talk about your role in raising awareness and educating the OR teams? Absolutely. Um, as chief of surgery, I have to look at outcomes and our utilization of blood products and people going back to the operating room and people, uh, patients having bleeding events. So looking at that data, it was important to always uh, stay up to date and touch base with our surgeons and our teams and talk about what we're doing. And then looking at this approach and how we can work together um, to decrease bleeding in the operating room based upon patient's disease state. Um, it's very important for us to recognize how these components work and how they help to function to keep patients from going back to the operating room, from keep, uh, to keep excessive bleeding down in the operating room. Um, we already spoke to the importance of how I worked with the blood bank and how blood is utilized, particularly in cancer patients. Um, we know that there's a very negative inflammatory effect that can occur. So we're already trying to use less blood products on our patients, but working together as a team and understanding the products and where they can fit in really helped. Um, and, and, and being that kind of team lead to be able to approach surgeons and clinical staff and encourage them to speak up and to work together uh, was very important. I think overall people were very receptive to it because um, even as surgeons, if, if they weren't familiar with some of the new products, becoming familiar and understanding active versus passive and understanding the cost values of things, um, surgeons got it, staff got it, and um, it, worked, it worked out very well. Do you think that this initiative helped foster more of that speak up, uh, speak up uh, thing you talked about at the beginning? Yeah, I think it's it, it, absolutely, this is a, an example of how people were able to become empowered to be able to feel comfortable to speak up. It is truly a team approach as Dora was alluding to earlier. We all had to work together to make this happen. And uh, it did uh, build our camaraderie and our trust for one another, our understanding of how we all do different things from ordering the product to understanding the cost efficacy of the product to how it helps the patient clinically. And we all had to come together to, to speak up, not at just meetings, but certainly in the operating room to say, wait, have you considered using this? And I think it's all in the approach, right? Dora, again, mentioned that earlier, how you approach a surgeon, how you approach a, tech, approach a technician, how you approach an administrator, and you've really got to understand the fundamentals of how things work and understanding your product before you can start talking to other people about it and understand the forum with which that's taking. Is that a boardroom? Is that in the operating room? All those things play in to being able to speak up. So let's get to the results portion of this and the impact of that collaboration that we've been talking about. Let's start with you, Dora. Talk about some of the takeaways and accomplishments that your team had. The takeaways and the, the accomplishments was the confidence that they gained from it. Um, the takeaways were they had now come to me with ideas. They understand that, you know, we're, we're going to look into this. We're going to look into the data if you ask me a question. So they'll come to me about something else. Be like, hey, can you give me the cost of this trocar to this trocar? And can I maybe talk to the reps about it? Because I feel like if we went to this one, you know, we can save some money here, we can do that, you know? And it was a lot of things that you would consider, things that maybe considered like, it's, it's something that a surgeon uses every single time, but they were able to find that confidence to have the conversations and not saying, hey, you need to use this instead. I, I'm not here to tell any surgeon exactly what their practice is and what they should or should not use. I'm only here to provide the data. And that is what I was able to teach them. 
show facts, show data, make sure you're understanding what you're showing and not misreading the data. And they gain that confidence to, they bring me things now. They say, hey, can we look at this? Will you look at this? Will you run this information for me? And I'd be happy to. And sometimes it goes nowhere and sometimes it goes somewhere. But the point is, is that they're learning to do that and they're opening up. They're not just the tunnel vision. They're seeing things from a higher level, looking down and seeing what we can do and what we can do as a group and seeing what teamwork does bring to the table. Yeah, relative to the Advantage Initiative, uh, we, we looked at savings and we captured savings by looking at operational initiatives versus clinical initiatives. When we look at the operational initiatives, um, those are the, the opportunities where uh, clinical practice is not changed. It's about right sizing and waste elimination. It sounds like your team has really mastered how to achieve that. In terms of dollars, do you remember the overall breakout of those dollars? Around 140? Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. <laughs> oh, yeah, for our winner. About 140,000. And some of them were very simple initiatives that just uh, required a review of a preference card or, or, or as simple as asking the surgeon, hey, do you need this? open for this case. Did you experience that in this initiative, Dr. Chidzinski? Oh, very much so. And, and it just goes to being able to speak up and empowering the team members. And I think Dora's approach is right on. Um, surgeons are scientists and we're all very data driven or we should be. So, you know, if she's coming to me and saying, hey, look, do you really need to use this amount or this product or, um, you know, just re-educating ourselves and working with it, you know, goes back to understanding how your passive and active products work and sitting down and saying, yeah, well, the cost of that product isn't that much different than this active product and the active product actually works better in our patient population. Um, so it's very important and you can't just, you know, speak to this on emotion or just how you feel or the surgeon can't say, well, I use this product because that's how I learned to do it when I was in training, which happens a lot with surgeons. And um, you know we have to be able to go back and constantly reevaluate what we're doing. Um, are the steps in the surgery the correct way? Are there better ways to improve this? Are there newer products that can help us out better than what I used in residency, better than what I learned in fellowship? And it takes working as a team to understand that and to understand the cost efficacy. Um, so it's great when Dora is able to come to me. And you know you have I, I do think this whole experience has allowed us and. You know, our surgical teams to be more open-minded about things and respect the value that everyone has in, in their roles that they serve. And um, it's, it's had a tremendous impact, obviously, on our institution from a financial standpoint, but more proudly for me as a clinician, our clinical impact on our patients. And when we stand back and look at this entire project, at least for the first phase, um, if you were to if another hospital came to you and said, what advice can you give us? We're thinking about doing something like this. What would, what would you say? I would say be attentive and give it a chance. Open your mind, listen, um, because it's going to ultimately help your institution. It's going to help your patients. And if there's cost savings as an institution, it's just going to let your institution grow further. Um, maybe you'll build a new surgical center out of it. Dora, what would you like to add to that? Um, I actually have had sister facilities approach me about how I did it. And I talk about the communications and the steps that I took. You can't just say, you know, hey, here's some information and 
go charge and get it done mm -hmm. without assuring that everyone is comfortable. And honestly, going back to what Dr. Chichinsky was saying, it goes both ways. When it's not just me communicating with them, but when they come back from seminars and they're super excited about something new, I'm open to that and I want to listen to what they have to say because it goes back and forth because that is how we continue doing what we have to do. It's ever changing. We're not using glass syringes anymore, you know? So if they're bringing me something that, that's new and out there, then I want to look into that and I want to see what I can do to get them what they need. It sounds like this will be a continual evolution of improvement for your facility in many different areas. With that, I want to thank you both for speaking with us today. And for those of you listening, if you'd like more information on Baxter's Advanced Surgery products, please visit www.advancedsurgery.baxter.com or contact your local sales professional. Mm -hmm.